You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. Well, church, you can go ahead and take your Bibles out and uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. It's our passage this weekend, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there's probably one in the little pouch in the seat in front of you. You can borrow that, maybe more than usual, even with, in light of our passage this weekend. If you don't have a Bible at home, just take that Bible home with you. And we would love for you to begin reading that at home to get to know its story and its God and what it teaches us. And we're going to get to that part of the story in just a few moments. But I want to begin by asking us a question uh, this morning uh, about story, and that is this. What is your favorite story? What's your favorite story? Maybe your favorite story comes from a movie movie that you've watched time and time again because you love the story. Maybe your favorite story is a book that you've read many times. Maybe your favorite story is a, a fable or a tale that you remember. You really connect with it. You love its lessons. Maybe your favorite story is a story that your parent or your grandparent told you as a child over and over again, and you know it so well you could repeat it. If someone were to ask you about your favorite story today and say, well, describe to me in as much detail that shows me you know the story, could you do it? Probably. If it's your favorite story, you'd be able to share events and time and places and what happened and characters. Now, about that story, if they were to ask you a little bit of a different question now, but the same question, but were to say, so what's the story of the Bible about? What's the gospel in as much detail as your favorite story, could you answer that question? What is the gospel? The heart of the message today comes that from something that's been on my heart out of 1 Peter chapter 3, where Peter writes, and he says that believers should always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you in season and out, always being prepared to give a defense of the hope that is in you in Christ Jesus. And as I was sharing with Pastor Robbie at the beginning of the summer, just my heart reflecting the past ministry year, I was just sharing with him my desire for our church to grow in this, to be equipped more in this, to be able to share the story of the Bible, the gospel of Jesus, to be able to share it with our friends and family in its entirety. And the reason I keep coming back to this and its importance is because knowing the gospel, like really knowing the gospel, it's vital to being saved by the gospel. Let me say that again. Knowing the gospel is vital to being genuinely saved by the gospel. And so we're going to do that today in a different way, but I want to ask us this. What is the gospel? Maybe the gospel is a word that you've heard many times before. Maybe in church you've grown up hearing it. Maybe in your world, in your jobs, you've heard maybe that word used before. Or maybe you're here today, this weekend, for the very first time in a church, and you're hearing the word gospel thinking, that's a word I've never heard before. What is the gospel? If you look in the Bible, the gospel usage or the word gospel is used relatively infrequently. It's not a very popular word, especially compared to like words such as money, where Jesus talked about money a lot. But then in Romans chapter 1, Paul says this of the word gospel. He says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And that should maybe intrigue us to wonder, wow, then what is the gospel? Now, just to be clear, there's different types of gospel in our world, uh, ways that we can use this word, and I want to show us a couple different examples on the screen before we talk about the gospel. Here's an example. The gospel of September. So if you're a parent, the good news, because the word gospel just means good news, the good news of September is that your kids are finally going back to school. I mean, that's good news. Here's another example, maybe for kids or students, the summer gospel. So the, the summer good news might have been that you were looking forward to this vacation or this outing or activity. You were looking forward to all school year, and then it was the summer, and the good news of the summer is we finally got to do this. Here's another use of the word gospel. 
the doctor shared such a gospel after the surgery, shared such good news with us that the surgery went well and that recovery was going to be just as expected. That's a use of the word gospel, and here's a very important use of the word gospel, the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus. Different ways to use the word, different meanings, but church, we need to hear this today, the gospel of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, you need to know the gospel of Jesus. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, you need to know the gospel of Jesus. It's life-changing. And so we're going to do that today. We're going to take a bird's-eye view of the Bible. The first book of the Bible in Genesis, all the way to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And if it goes well, we'll be here till Thursday, because there's a lot of information. No, we're going to do that in Ephesians chapter 2, which is why hopefully you have it open. And let's read it together now. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. It says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work at the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. It's a great start. Verse 4, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're going to take this passage and use it a little bit differently today, different than maybe the normal expositional way that we would walk verse by verse through this, but we're going to come regularly back to this passage, looking at what Paul writes as a great summary of the story of the Bible, of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And so let's begin before the story in verse 1, and just, just notice this, what Paul says in the words that he uses. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses, and sins. Now, this is like when a movie begins, and it begins in the future, and, and you're wondering, how did we get here? What's, I mean, what's going on? Can we at least go back to the beginning? Paul uses the word were, which means something has happened. It's past tense. And then he, he calls readers. He's saying, you were dead in trespasses and sins. And that leaves me to wonder, what gives Paul the ability to call me a trespasser and a sinner and saying that something happened when I was dead? And so to understand this, we need to go back to the beginning of the story to find out why he can write this in these verses. And if you remember in elementary school where maybe you were taught about every good story and how there's always a plot line, a storyline to the story that it follows, the Bible's no different. I want to show us an example of that right here. So Maybe this is going to be helpful for us today in understanding the story of the Bible, the gospel of Jesus in light of a, a story with a beginning. And, and then shortly after the beginning, there's a problem. Something happens, we'll find out about. And you know, really, the problem brings flatline. It drops significantly because it's terrible. And then there's rising action through the rest of the story of the Bible as we recognize the climax, the pinnacle of what happens in the Bible. And then there's resolving action. Loose ends are tied up and there's pointing forward to a part of the story where there's a conclusion and we understand, oh, that's how it ends. That's how most stories flow. And that's how the Bible works as well because the Bible is a story for us. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take the story of the Bible, the gospel of Jesus, and look at it in five points. Five points to summarize all of this. And maybe you'll leave here today thinking, wow, like I got five points now to clearly and effectively and succinctly share the gospel of Jesus. 
Maybe you struggled to know where to begin before or what you could include or what really it's about. And, and my prayer for us today is as we leave, we maybe have those points. And so the Bible begins all the way in the beginning with creation in Genesis chapter 1. And so that's our first point of the gospel. We're going to do the same thing. Point number one, God's creation, we learn, is all about worship. The worship of God recognizing him as the rightful creator of creation. It's his creation. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And as we look in creation, we think, wow, I can see God everywhere. How good is he? How creative is he? How beautiful is he? How redeeming is he? And so in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we begin by reading this story. It's the beginning. And God creates everything that we can think of. He spends six days doing this. He creates um, everything from the sun, moon, and stars to land and water formations. He creates animals and plants, every kind of vegetation possible. And at the end of his creation, he, with the climax of what he creates, makes the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, and places them in this beautiful garden he's created called the Garden of Eden. And what's neat is that the Bible tells us at this point, as the pinnacle of God's creation, as humans, we are made in his image. And that means that there's characteristics about God, there's attributes about God he shares with us that we can see in ourselves. We think, oh, that's because we're made in the image of a God who's like that. But then as the story continues, we find out that there's attributes or characteristics about us that are not true about God. He does not share certain attributes with us. Or there's just things about us as humans that we look to God and say, that's not who God is. And so they live in this garden, this beautiful creation, and it says they walked with God and they talked with God, and this this relationship between the creator and the creation was perfect. But to test their hearts, God puts a tree in this garden and gives them this rule and says, you can't eat fruit from that tree. You can enjoy my creation, but don't eat fruit from that tree. And if you know the story, it doesn't take long for Adam and Eve to look at this fruit and to, in temptation and conversation with a serpent, a snake, think about what it would be like to be God to be in control, to be the one that makes decisions, the one that knows right from wrong and good from evil, and they are tempted to eat, and they take, and they eat, and the story tells us that it was a decision that they regretted instantly because they run and they hide from the presence of God. Up until this part of the story, as we're learning about creation, created for the purpose of worship, especially in the Psalms we see this in creation, We already see in three chapters into the story of God, the part of God's creation malfunctions and humans choose to disobey and go their own way. And then as the story continues, we realize more about God's character and we realize that in that moment in the garden, because God is good and perfect and just, There's no sin found in him that that this disobedience called sin needs to be punished. There needs to be consequence for what Adam and Eve had chosen to do, to not declare that God knows best and that he's in control. And so God hands out forms of punishment for Adam and for Eve and even for the serpent, a snake, Satan, God's enemy. God tells Adam and Eve, your world will now be filled with pain and heartache and brokenness and tears and hard work and death. It's a lot. But worst of all, this perfect relationship now would be separated. God removed them literally from his presence. You could not dwell in the garden and he sent them out of the garden. And then God comes to the serpent, the snake, and says, here's your punishment. There will be a time one day when a rescuer for the world will come and crush your head with his heel and you will be destroyed forever. Already in Genesis chapter 3, we get a promise of something that God would be building towards. And so that's how the story begins. And that's why in verses 1 through 3 in our passage, Paul can write about how we are dead in our trespass and sin. 
He's referring back to the garden when the story began and said, remember that time when sin entered the world and there was now punishment and consequence for action. And he describes the life that we live before something changed forever. You know, this part of the gospel is really hard for our world to hear. Maybe it's hard for us to hear. Well, Adam and Eve were in the garden. They were the ones who chose to disobey. They ate the fruit. God gave them the rule. I wasn't there. Why do I deserve to be punished? It's fine that they are punished, but why me? I'm a good person. I, I, I would have done differently. Well, here's what God's word says about our heart. Isaiah 53, 6 says that we all like sheep have gone astray each to our own way. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, says that the heart is deceitful above all things and sick. Romans 3.10 says that no one is righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23 says that we are all sinful and fall short of the, the standard, the moral, of, the moral rule of righteousness that God has for us. And then in Romans 6.23, it tells us that because of sin, the only fair punishment that God requires of us is forever death. And then the concept of Adam and Eve sinning in Romans 5.12 answers that and says that sin for all the world entered through one man's disobedience. And therefore, because Adam was the representative of all of mankind, everyone on team human is punished. Now I read this and maybe I, I still feel it's unfair. I wasn't there. Or maybe I need more convincing. It doesn't take long for me to go through the course of one day when I wake up to look into my own life, my own heart, and realize how wicked and selfish and prideful and hurtful I can be to my wife or my family or those around me, and I think, wow, it's true. God's word is true. I need help. Do you need help? This part of the story, when we wonder, why, why did this take place? How did it happen? We begin to see the character of God. We see how he views sin so seriously. It shows us later in the story how much God will do and how far he will go to completely remove sin from creation. But God's plan about redeeming and restoring the brokenness at that part of the story was just beginning. And what we'll see in point two of the gospel now is God's plan is all about redemption. God's creation's about worship. His plan is all about redemption. And as the rest of the 38 books in the Old Testament, the first half of your Bible begins to teach us, it's, it shows us, well, things are really going to get interesting. But maybe you've read parts of the Old Testament before and you've been left confused. Maybe you're wondering, why is that in the Bible? How did that happen? Maybe you've heard it taught to you before or you've read it in, in, in your own life and time and you've said, how can that detail end up in the Bible? That's strange. I want to assure you today that under God's plan of redemption, every book and story and detail within his word is there purposely. Purposely to, to guide and direct and point us and to help fix our eyes on the gospel that God's plan is working to redeem the problem of sin. That's why it's in there. It's not random, it's purposeful. And one of the things that I love about our children's curriculum here at our church is that we try to do that with kids every single weekend. We call it the big God story. And so as they hear stories and people and parts of the Bible, we're trying to fix their eyes on what God is doing in that big story. Here's a picture of a timeline of what they see in various different ways in age groups every weekend. And so in September, uh, we begin in Genesis somewhere, and we begin with all different kinds of stories throughout the ministry year in August, ending in Revelation. We do that every year with them at different stories. But here, for example, is the story highlighted of Joseph. And we want them to understand here's what God has done already in the story and what he's going to do in the story. It's not a random passage. It's not a random book that we've taken out. It fits right there within the story of the Bible. That can be helpful for us and give us gospel perspective as we read God's word. 
And sometimes I wonder whether or not our kids could better answer for us what the story of the Bible's about or tell us what the gospel of Jesus is. Well, God continues the story and the mess that Adam and Eve had left in the garden. They begin to deal with the consequence of sin, but then sometime later, God speaks to a man named Abraham and his wife Sarah, and he says, I'm going to use you in my plan of redemption. You'll be the great, great, great grandparents of a family, a chosen people that will one day see a rescuer born from your family that will fix this problem in the world. And it's hard for Abraham and Sarah to believe because the Bible says they're almost 100 years old at the time. How could we have a baby? But God's the God of the impossible and promised to them that if I make a promise, I never break promises. And nine months later, they have a baby boy and they name him Isaac. And Isaac grows up and he has a son as well named Jacob. And God makes the same promise to all of them. You will be a part of my plan, my plan of redemption. And we read parts of the story and we think, oh yeah, that's why it's there. God's working on something. That storyline is still unfolding for us as we read the details of the story. And without gospel perspective, as we read and are reminded and come back to these stories, maybe we forget what they're all about. Maybe you've been stuck reading the Bible that way. And I want to use a couple of examples throughout the Old Testament. Here's Joseph. It's a nice picture of Joseph. I'm the kid's pastor, so we get to use nice-looking resources for kids. And um, the story of Joseph, without gospel perspective, without the perspective that God is working on a bigger story here, maybe for parents we read this and we say, well, that's the part of the story where God's teaching us not to make favorites of our children like Jacob did with Joseph. His brothers beat him up and left him in a pit to die, and then they sold him into slavery in Egypt, and we think, wow, that's, that's a sad part of the story. And then we hear about Joseph's life and his adult, and we're like, oh yeah, that's the part of the story where we're learning to flee from temptation as Joseph did with Potiphar's wife, and we think, well, that's what the story of Joseph is about, but that's not what Joseph's about. God used Joseph, remember, in that promise of redemption through lineage to allow him to become the right-hand man in Egypt. God showed favor to him, and he became in control and moved his family to Egypt in a famine, and there they lived and dwelled and, and grew in number and eventually threatened the size of the Egyptian army, so they put them into slavery for 400 years. And then God raises this next man named Moses, and maybe you know stories of Moses in the Bible. He's got the Ten Commandments there. That's a popular part of the story, and like, wow, yeah, Moses, man, he was such a great part of the Bible. I remember those stories and learning them. And without gospel perspective and reminding ourselves every time we come back to them what God's doing, we, we get lost in the story of Moses, maybe in the, in the ten plagues where God was awakening with signs the eyes of Pharaoh to let his people go from slavery. And in the tenth plague, we read about how God sent the angel of death to wipe out the firstborn child of all the Egyptians. And we think, well, that's strange and seems harsh. And then God protects his people with lamb's blood painted on the doorposts of their homes that night that the angel would pass over. And we think, what is that all about? And without gospel perspective, we forget that that part of the story is pointing us forward to a plan of redemption where one day God would send another lamb the Lamb of God, put forward for the world where again his blood shed would cover the sins of people, would protect them and save them from death, that they would look back to the Passover with Moses and be like, that's what God was doing. And then some more time goes on and period of judges don't work out and maybe you remember stories about David. Or we read that part of the story and we see how God used David as the second king for his people Israel and we say, without gospel perspective, stand beside David with our sling and our stones looking up at Goliath. How do we slay the trials and the Goliath in our lives? That's what God's teaching us from the Bible. But that's not what the Bible teaches us in the story of David. Because we could never slay Goliath. And so God was reminding his people through David, an imperfect king, 
that one day he would send a perfect king for his people. Someone who would once and for all slay sin and conquer death forever. Who would rightly rule over creation and would be the only remedy for sin. You know, throughout the Old Testament, we, we can be reminded time and time again of examples like this. We come through the prophets' books in the Old Testament, and they are messengers for God, saying, this is how you should live as God's people. The rescuer is coming. And they're imperfect people, and they struggle to trust God that he's the rightful creator. But I know that at times in my life, I can see myself in those stories. Can you? Do we even know these stories well enough to see ourselves within them? And so in the first three verses, Paul writes and he describes this very struggle, the struggle of God's people in the Old Testament, struggling to give it to God, to surrender and to trust him, struggling to see with gospel perspective God promised someone was coming, struggling to keep a bigger perspective that the story of the Bible was so much more than just that moment and that detail. God knew what was best, and ultimately the time had come for the rescuer for sin to come. He was the remedy for the world. And so point three in our gospel, after creation and God's plan, we come to God's remedy. And we're going to see how God's remedy was going to be all about love. God's remedy would show us that there was only good news because there was bad news. And there could only be a remedy because there was something that was broken that needed fixing anyways. If we don't accept the bad or the serious part of the story, then you don't need something to be fixed or you don't need good news. And it was God's plan all along to show us that the way he would fix and bring a remedy would be to put forward someone in his people's place. It would be someone for you and for me. Someone who would die that didn't need to. And in the Old Testament, God's people were required time and time again, monthly and yearly, to offer sacrifices of various animals that would appease God for their sin. These sacrifices were temporal. And now the time had come where God was putting forward a sacrifice for them that would once and for all be sufficient and would pay the penalty of sin. Let's come back to verse 4 in Ephesians to see how this begins. So verses 1 through 3 is hopeless and helpless. And then we come to verse 4, but God. But God. Church, these are the two most world-changing, life-changing words you could ever read in God's word. Despite all of this in one through three, verse four says, but God being rich in mercy because of great love with which he loved us even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. The gospel at this point had a creation meant to bring worship and they had a plan of redemption, but no remedy. The world and sin was still broken. The relationship between creator and creation needed to be mended. And so here's how it happened. Jesus was born as a baby, exactly how God had promised. And his parents were Mary and Joseph. And although he was miraculously conceived, he was an ordinary boy, fully human able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And then Jesus grows up and he becomes a man at the age of about 30 years old. The Bible tells us he begins what's called his earthly ministry. He began to travel around with people into towns and villages, telling them that although he was fully human, he was also fully God. And he did this by doing miracles and healings and showing power and then teaching and demonstrating authority. And people would look to Jesus and say, who is this Jesus? We've never seen anything like this before. No one talks like this. No one claims to be God like this. 
And he's helping them understand that he was the rescuer, the remedy that God had promised for years and for years. Some people had the expectation that the rescuer would look different than this. More than just a simple man who was born as a baby and wrapped in swaddling cloths and placed in a manger in Bethlehem. With no triumphal entry, they thought maybe the rescuer would be a military hero, someone that would lead them in battle and be victorious, someone that would free them from the rule of the Romans at that time. That's how the story should have gone. Not like you, not like this. But that was exactly how God's plan for the world would unfold. So Jesus taught people that the purpose of his life He was born to die. And that he was going to be the one crucified in our place. See, the love of God had compelled him to send himself as a substitute and sacrifice. That's why in verse 4 in our passage, in light of all these things, Paul writes and says, But God... So not in light of who we think we are or what we have done that compelled God to do this. He says, but God, even when we were dead in sin, God was great in mercy, and God was full of love. That's why God does this. God didn't owe us anything. We were completely deserving of death because of sin, and then God steps in, and God says, that's enough. I love you so much. I love you too much to not give you a second chance. But because the world was sick of this message, they took Jesus and they bound him and they beat him and they nailed him to a cross to get rid of this rescuer, to deal with this remedy, to no longer hear the message of love for God's creation. And so Jesus, the rescuer of the world, was crucified on a cross. But then on the morning of the third day, as Mary and Mary go to the tomb to remember Christ, they find the stones rolled away. And the grave is empty. And they're met by an angel that tells them, why are you here? Jesus is alive. And they talk with the angel, and the angel says, Jesus is no longer here. He's risen from the dead. God has raised him because he looked at Jesus Christ, God the Son, and said, your death and sacrifice for sin is sufficient. And so God raised him from the dead, conquering sin and evil and death, showing it was his plan and his remedy and all his action to save the world. It was God's love that put him on the cross and God's power that raised him from the dead. Church, our understanding of the gospel must be that the gospel is entirely a work of God. And then Paul writes this in verse Five and says later in verse eight again, by grace you have been saved. The definition of grace is that which God gives us that we don't deserve. So we look at this part of the story and we don't look at the cross then in light of grace and say what I have done for God to do this, but we look at the cross and in brokenness and humility and surrender, say, God, what have I done? But God, but God, rich in mercy and full of love, puts forward himself and gave us a second chance that by faith in this Jesus, we might be saved. And that's why in verse 6, he says then, because of Jesus, we have been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Because of Jesus, instead of death, we can have life. And instead of hopelessness, we can have hope. And because of Jesus, instead of helplessness, we can have help. 
It's all because of him. It's only because of him. Paul says it's the only way back to God. It's the only way to be saved. Romans chapter 1, it's the power of God for salvation. Loved ones, our understanding of the gospel needs to be centered on Jesus as our substitute. Our understanding of the gospel always needs to have the cross as the climax, the center of the story. God is the main character. It's entirely a work of God. And if you've believed another gospel in your life that has told you that the cross is not center or not the climax of the story or that God is not the main character, or if you've believed a gospel that has taught you that there is something left to contribute to the already sufficient, complete work of Jesus, it's not a gospel, as Galatians 1 says. It's heresy. It needs to be all about Jesus. And so verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's not my own doing. It is the gift of God. There's nothing we can add to the gospel of Jesus. There's no words that we can articulate. There's no good words that we can do that will, in our minds, think that we appease God in his hatred of sin. There's no nice deeds or perfect church attendance. There's no penance or alms. There's no helping the poor. There's no giving financially to the church. There's no shoveling your neighbor's driveway or making meals for those in need. There's no contributing to society. There's no donating to charity. There's no singing loudest in church or raising your hands for God to see that will ever save you from your sin. That's why Paul says it's not your own doing. It's the gift of God given freely to the world. God says, church, take it and live or leave it and die. And that's why the gospel of Jesus is not only the greatest story ever written, it's the greatest gift ever given for you and for me. And God requires a response to this story and it's the response of faith. And if you're sitting today here in this place wondering how God could love you that much or accept you or forgive you or how Jesus could be crucified for you knowing your life or what you're stuck in or where you've come or the season of life that you're in, you need to hear this today. The only requirement that God expects of you is faith. That's all. Complete trust that he died for you. And you surrender to him and you say, God, forgive me for who I am, but thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And he'll take you just as you are. And that's why point four of the gospel tells us that God's call in light of this story is all about faith. It's all about faith. You know, I remember the time in my life that this finally made sense to me. I'd grown up in the church. My parents had brought me. I heard the stories. I heard the gospel. I knew the answers. And, and then finally at 16, after the presentation of the gospel, it clicked for me. And I understood in its entirety the story of the Bible. Wow, Jesus died for me. He hung on a cross for my sin. And my response of faith was to say, God, you did this for me. You did something that I could never do on my own. And now this is my response that I want from my kids as my wife and I lead them and teach them what it means to follow Christ or as they hear these stories. The Bible is not a book you close and put down and forget about. And that's what's unique about the gospel. God requires and calls us to respond to it with faith. And that's why Paul concludes in verse 10 and says this about us. For we are his workmanship. We've been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. It was his plan that we should walk in them. That's why we've been made, to give glory, to respond to our creator. 
you know, 40 days after Jesus came back to life from the grave, he gathered his disciples, his closest friends around him, and told them that he was returning back to heaven where he had left his throne. And he was going to prepare a place for all those who had faith in this Jesus, in his death for them, where one day he would return. And just as the story began with creation and rightful worship, the story would end there as well. And Jesus promises and says, surely I will come and be with you soon. He promises he will return. And so the story will end, as the book of Revelation tells us, that point five, just like point one, God's creation will be all about God's worship. Not necessarily just singing for all of eternity, but living and dwelling again in a new creation and a new earth with God forever. Recognizing him as the creator, the one that put forward himself, the lamb of God that took away the sins of the world. And the Bible paints a beautiful picture of this day as we wait for it to come. You know, in understanding this part of the story and what we await and look forward to and how God calls us to respond in faith, the rightful response is to say, God, would you take my life and use it for that glory? Would you allow me and my life to be able to be used so that people would know the story of Jesus and how much you love them and what you have done for them? But Jesus doesn't promise this life will be easy. He says it sometimes will be difficult and you will be persecuted for the hope and faith you have in Christ. But look forward to the day when the story ends for forever in eternity with me. But until then, go around and tell people the message, the gospel, the story of the Bible. Maybe someone in your life, a coworker that needs to hear this good news. Maybe a family member in your life that needs to hear the gospel. It may be someone who lives right beside you that needs you to know the story of the Bible that you would share it with them. Because as Peter writes in 1 Peter 3, that believers should always be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in them in Christ Jesus. So church, do I know the gospel? Do you really know the gospel? And if you are a follower of Christ, how can you not know the gospel that has saved you? I want to show us that timeline that uh, we began with today, this time with the five points of the gospel, the story of the Bible. And, and hopefully this is helpful for you as maybe you wonder, how do I share with that coworker or neighbor or family member? Well, the Bible begins with creation and it's all about worship and shortly after something terrible happens, sin enters the world. But God's plan would be all along through the story of the Bible that he would redeem it. And it works towards a climax in the story. God's remedy for the world was only Jesus. It's the only way that we are saved from sin. That's what the cross of Christ shows us. And God calls us to respond to this story. As we are in a time now of responding with faith to say, that's a God I want to live for. That's a God I want to love and serve because he's done that for me. And eventually it points forward to a new creation. Jesus promises that one day everything would be restored. And maybe you've been here today thinking, I want to grow in this. I want to be better at sharing the story of the Bible and knowing in my own life the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus. There's some resources that I want to recommend on behalf of our pastoral team that maybe will be helpful for that. Obviously, the Bible is the best place to begin, it's the good news. Sometimes there's supplementary reading that we can have. Um, if you're an adult or student, these two books here could be helpful if you got your hands a copy of those. Um, Greg Gilbert, What is the Gospel? And Von Roberts, God's Big Picture are excellent presentations of the storyline of the Bible. If you have a child in your life, the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones or Kevin DeYoung's book, The Biggest Story, are excellent for children, helping them see the story of the Bible. And if you're a student, Pastor Carl likes this video here that he recommends um, by Propaganda. It's a spoken word video called The Gospel. 
And maybe those resources can be helpful for you as we grow together in our understanding to be able to defend the story of the Bible and the gospel of Jesus. But I began by asking us what your favorite story was and how confidently you could summarize it in detail. I'm praying that in light of the story of the Bible, the gospel of Jesus, that we would recognize today, wow, nothing beats that story. I gotta know that story. I think if we don't know or can't articulate the gospel of Jesus, sometimes in our lives it means that we don't practice or study or share it enough. Earlier this summer, um, the Washington Post published an article on behalf of... um, Christian author Philip Yancey. It was called The Death of Reading is Threatening the Soul. And in it, um, Yancey states, um, in bringing to mind individuals that read lots, mentioning that Bill Gates reads 50 books a year. Mark Zuckerberg, the creator of Facebook, he reads one uh, book every two weeks. And Mark Cuban, who owns the Dallas Mavericks uh, basketball team. He reads more than three hours every day. And we think, wow, yeah, but even if I wanted to do that, they live completely different lives than me. How is that possible? Like, I I get this. We have four kids in our family under the age of five. Our youngest two are twins. I've used this excuse in my own life. I don't have enough time in the day to be in God's word for three hours. Or maybe practically, God, I don't have enough energy in my life in the morning when I wake up or when I go to sleep at the end of the day to be knowing your story like this as an example. And then then I talk to a dad in our church who tells me that he gets up at four o'clock every day because he knows his kids are up at five and that's his only window to be in God's word, to be knowing the gospel and refreshing himself of what Christ has done for him. And then I think, wow, now I'm just making excuses. And the article goes on, and Yancey um, helps us understand, says, if you were to take the average reading speed of 400 words per minute, it would take us about 417 hours in a year to read 200 books in one year. Think what that would be like. Oh, but we don't have time for that. He says, well, those 417 hours, they're still short of the 608 hours that we spend on average on social media. Or get this, in light of the 1,642 hours on average we spend watching TV. And he goes on to say about reading, it's not that hard. We all have the time to read. The scary part The part that we all ignore is that we are too addicted, too weak, too distracted to do what we all know is important. How much more true of that is reading the word, the gospel of Jesus? And maybe you're not a strong reader. Maybe you say, I struggle with reading, I have difficulty with it. That's fine. But then you should have an audio book where you can hear God's word every single day. Loved ones, being immersed in God's word is the only way that we will be changed by it, the only way that we will know it confidently enough to share it with the world. And I get that it's hard to find routine sometimes to have God time and to be in this book, but then when you finally get that time, something works out and you're able to find that routine and you read God's word and reminded of the story and you think, wow, It's so encouraging for me and where I'm at right now. God's word does not return void to us. It's the power of God for salvation. Your word is life to me, it says. It refreshes the soul. And then in those moments we say, wow, it's so worth it. It's exactly what I needed. And I know in my own life when I get to those times and I close what I've been reading, I just think, wow, I'm I'm in such a place to worship right now of everything that God has done for me in this book and how much he loved me and put forward himself for me and what he was doing in the story of redemption, what I look forward to despite the brokenness and the hard things in life. God, I want to praise you and give you worship like the story begins and the story ends. 
And that's a right response that I feel, and we're going to do that in just a moment. But I want to I show you some lyrics of some gospel-saturated truth that we find within God's Word. I love that we can read it, but also we get to sing it too. This song gives us reasons to praise the King. It says there's a reason why the curse of sin is broken. There's a reason why the darkness runs from light. There's a reason why we stand here now forgiven. Jesus is alive. And verse 2 goes on. It says there's a reason why we are not overtaken. There's a reason why we sing on through the night. There's a reason why our hope remains eternal. Jesus is alive. And here's the last verse. There's a reason why our hearts can be courageous. There's a reason why the dead are made alive. There's a reason why we share his resurrection. Remember verse 6? Because he has raised us and seated us in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Church, the reason why we praise the king the reason why we respond in worship is because of the gospel of Jesus. It's the, the greatest story ever written. It's the greatest gift ever given to the world. And God requires and calls us to respond in faith and worship to him as the rightful creator. Let's pray. God, you are worthy of praise. You are worthy of praise, God, because as the story of the Bible teaches us, as the gospel, the good news of Jesus shows us, it's all about you. It's nothing that we have done or what we have added because as Paul says in verse 10, we're your workmanship. We've been created to give you worship. You were the one who sent the remedy to the world to fix the problem of sin. It was Jesus and only Jesus. So God, we're here today and we just stop and we just say thank you. Thank you that you knew what was best. Thank you that you didn't leave us in a place of sin, of hopelessness and helplessness like verses one through three, but verse four, but God. But God being rich in mercy and full of love, made us alive together in Christ. It's all because of the cross. So God, we stop and we just recognize you as the greatest story writer we could ever find. It's the greatest story that we could ever read, God. We want to have faith. We want to believe. We want to give you worship. And so God, maybe you're doing that right now in us. You're stirring our hearts to worship. Or maybe you're stirring in us for the very first time to respond with faith and say, I want to live for that, God. That story has changed my life. God, would you hear our praises now as your church and as your people and your creation. Amen.